Um, I'm going to probably embarrass it, but I had the privilege of meeting uh, Hannah earlier, who is one of the leaders of the, the CU. Matt used to be a uh, leader of a CU down in Bath, is that right? Or Bath, depending on where you're from. Oh. Um, how many of you want to hear from God this morning? How many of you love the Bible? I love I love the scriptures. I want to hear from God this morning. Need, I need to hear from God this morning. Desperately need to hear from him. And I, and I pray that God will speak to us through his through His word this morning as we look into it. This, this is God's word. God's word. That God that we've been talking about who is unchangeable for reading his word this morning. Now, um, me being an American uh, living in Britain, uh, living in Europe, I want to merge two things together just to give us a little introduction to the sermon this morning. Um, how many of you ever heard of Route 66? It goes through America from one side of the continent to the other. Yeah, it's a big big road that goes through. We've also got the Autobahn uh, in 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 Europe that uh, you can like go however fast you want to on it. So I'm going to give you something between uh, somewhere between a Route 66 and Autobahn of the first 23 chapters of Acts. Okay, don't get too nervous. I'm not going into great detail. But thus far in the book of Acts, uh, in, in chapter 1, before ascending to heaven, Christ gives his unstoppable mission, that's the Great Commission, to his disciples to be witnessed to the nations. Uh, in chapter 2, after a season of prayer in the upper room, the Holy Spirit descends on the followers of Christ, enabling them to declare the gospel in miraculous ways. And the results in, uh, of this bring about an evangelistic explosion and the birth of the church. In chapters 3 to 6, lame man is healed, Peter and John are arrested, yet the gospel is proclaimed and believed. The church is attacked by Satan from the inside, Ananias and Sapphira, um, yet fear comes upon all, and the gospel is believed and obeyed. Chapters 7 and 8, Stephen is arrested and martyred, yet the gospel is declared. A man named Saul is introduced and begins hauling men and women off to prison after Stephen had been martyred for his faith with the authority of the high priest himself. Yet the gospel spreads. The church grows and expands to new regions and new heights. The unstoppable mission is marching on. In chapter 9, um, God in his sovereignty blinds Saul, speaks to him, and Saul gives his life to Christ, his sight is restored um, by God's servant Ananias. Paul is baptized and immediately begins preaching the gospel. Uh, though Peter brings um, the first Gentile family uh, to Christ in chapter 10, chapters 11 onward are dominated by Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, of course. And whilst working with Barnabas and Silas from chapters 12 to 22, Paul is imprisoned multiple times. Paul is beaten. Paul is stoned. Paul is smuggled out of cities at times. He takes three different missionary journeys, preaches the gospel all up and down three different continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa, and writes a couple of books of the New Testament in the process. And despite the opposition, disciples are made, churches are planted, elders are ordained. The unstoppable mission marches on. When we get to chapter 23, we learn that God has promised Paul is going to make it to Rome. Remember, Alan last week talked about that really, really poignantly. He said that he was going to take Paul to Rome, then to home. And God will take you to your Rome and take you to home as well. 
Uh, and, and God has promised Paul he's going to take him to Rome, even though uh, several events look as if they would derail this. God's promise rings true. The plans of angry mobs, the plans of uh, deadly soldiers and powerful dignitaries are no match for the sovereign God who preserves Paul's life over and over again. No one and no thing can stand in his way. And as we come into chapter 24, Paul is still in custody. He was originally taken into custody as an effort of Rome to protect one of its citizens because he was a citizen of Rome. But the unbelieving Jews, they're, they're still conspiring. They're still conniving. They still want to kill Paul. Verse number one. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, in verse one, we're told that Ananias, the high priest, you know, the one that Paul confronted last chapter, had, had gathered some of the Sanhedrin together with the purpose of accusing Paul before the governor Felix. Now, Ananias deployed the help of this orator, a trained public speaker, to speak um, as convincingly as possible against Paul. Paul was seemingly helpless here. And this morning what we're talking about, um, we, we, we're talking about hope in the face of adversity. Hope in the face of adversity. And here, Paul is faced with a helpless situation. He was seemingly helpless as these godless men com have completely taken liberty to attack him. And they, they have complete liberty, complete freedom to attack him in this particular uh, realm. So, so we see, number one, we have a situation that was hopeless. We see this from verses 2 to 9. The situation was hopeless. The situation was bleak. And maybe you're sat here this morning and you think, I'm, I'm in a hopeless situation myself. Well, the Apostle Paul was in Acts chapter 24. Let's read verses 2, two to 9 together. It says, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, See that through you we enjoy seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity as being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thanksgiving. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Now this man, Tertullus, um, he was basically a professional flatterer. That's basically what he was. Um, what, what is flattery? Flattery is saying something about someone or someone that, or something that isn't true in order to get something from them. That's what flattery is, right? Let's be honest. None of what he is saying is true. Not a single person there believed what he was saying about Felix. They hated Felix. He represented the invaders and the oppressors of the Jews. So, so, so these words that Ananias had put into Tertullus' mouth are uh, uh, an obvious and, and blatant lie. And the governor should have seen right through this. Verse number five. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. 
a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So because he's associated with Jesus, he's a plague. But listen to me, Jesus was not a plague. He healed the plagues. Jesus was not the creator of dissension. He was the unifier of Jewish covenants. He was, he was not the ringleader of a sect. He was the living word of God. And Paul was a disciple of Jesus. Notice the title that Tertullus gives the followers of Christ. The Nazarenes. Yeah. Do, do, do you remember what they said about Jesus when they found out he was from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, um, they're, they're trying to, to, to heap evil and, and ill will upon these men by calling them the Nazarenes. Uh, Nazareth was a tip. It was an immoral, unclean place. Therefore, Nazarene was a derogatory term. Verse number six. He even tried to profane the temple, which was a lie. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. So Paul had not profaned the temple, but had humbly gone to the temple to worship as a good Jew. They did not want to judge him according to the law of Moses, like they said they did here. They wanted to allow fasting assassins to murder him. Do you remember that last week? That's what they wanted, which was a direct violation of the law. So everything they're accusing him of, they're guilty of. Verse 7, but the commander, uh, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And so they were. There were accusations. They didn't have any evidence. Verse 9, and the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, it was, it was obvious they were lying. He uses the word accuse rather than using actual evidence. They had no evidence and they could not provide anything but empty accusations against Paul. And that they were all clutching at straws, so to speak, desperate to see Paul put to death, just like Jesus was put to death. We see number two, not just a situation that seems helpless. We see a servant filled with hope. In verses 10 to 16, we see it highlighted about this. You know, you know, it's somewhat easy to be hopeful, to be a hopeful, positive person when circumstances around you are positive is easy, isn't it? It's easy to be positive when everything is, is just like great. You're having a great day. The sun's shining. Your favorite parking spot is available. All of these things are just, everything's coming together at just the right time. You, you've, you've got a, 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 free, a free Starbucks on your reward card. You know, like, like everything's coming together at just the right time. It's easy to be positive in moments like that. But what about when your circumstances aren't bright and positive? Verses 10 to 16, we find Paul with his back against the wall, confidently beginning to speak to the governor in the midst of his accusers. And look at verse number 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to speak to him, answered, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, a few things to consider here. First, Paul is not flattering Felix. He's not being hypocritical with what I just said a moment ago. Remember what Tertullian said? Or Tertullus, not Tertullian, sorry. Wrong. That was a historian, wasn't it? Um, remember what Tertullus said? He basically said, oh, Felix, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? Something like that. I think that's the Matt Green version, by the way. Um, they, they, they were hurling empty compliments 
in his direction in order to get something from him. Uh, they, they were using deceit to earn favor. Paul, however, was not using flattery. I, I think he was being honest. He's, he's been lied about, beaten, conspired against, and much more in the name of religion and in the name of politics. And now here stood before him a Greco-Roman governor who had been in this very position for nine years. He'd been governor for nine years. He knew all about the issues that had been going on, especially the ones pertaining to the Jews. He knew all about this. He'd seen revolt after revolt. He'd seen crack job leader after leader. Um, I, th I think our Nigerian friends would call it Jibbity, is that right? So, these, these, maybe I got that wrong. Anyways, he'd seen this and would be able to justify um, Paul. He, he could justly discern that Paul was not one of those wicked leaders and that their supposed evidence was non-existent. Now, I believe he was genuinely overjoyed to see this man that he thought was going to give him a fair shake. Second Paul says that he went to Jerusalem 12 days ago. Now, are 12 days enough time to organize a rebellion and convince a vast number of people to join it? No, it was all lies. So, so he again begins to refute their claims. R remember their accusation from the previous chapters? Supposedly, Paul was anti-Jew. He was anti-temple. He was anti-scriptures. Well, Paul addresses that again. First, he says, I'm not anti-Jew. According to verse number 11, he was being a good Jew by going to worship in Jerusalem. And then we get to verse number 12. And they ne neither found me in the temple disputing anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Now, this is a big miracle because everywhere that Paul went, he preached in the temples, he preached in the synagogues, and this time he remained silent. He's not anti-temple. So he's, he's not anti-Jew. He's not anti-temple. He was in the temple worshiping uh, a God. Um, but also look at verse number 13. Nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me of. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Now here's this term again. We've seen it time and time again. And by the way, what Paul is saying here is, um, you know, he's, he's not anti-biblical. We're going to get back to that here in a minute. He's not anti-scripture. But here's this term again, the way. And, and, and whilst the unbelieving Jews were mockingly calling them the Nazarenes, a very common name for Christians in the first century, possibly one they gave themselves, is the way. Paul says, they call it a sect, but I know its true origins. It wasn't sectarianism. He alludes to all things written in the law and the prophets. Remember in Luke 24, 27, what Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection? Can you remember that? It, it, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, that's the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. So, so the scriptures are not about morals. The scriptures are not about commandments or standards. Yes, they make mention of all of those things in great detail at times. But that's not what the scriptures are really about. What the scriptures are really about is Jesus. Every single book, chapter, verse 
word is about him, pointing to him. And in fact, all of the scriptures can be stripped back to just two words, Jesus Christ. He was the walking, living scriptures, the fulfillment of the promises and the embodiment of all the teachings. It was all about Jesus. All of the scriptures were pointing to him. He fulfilled them. His, his fulfillment of the scriptures culminated in his death for our sins, in his Victoria, victorious resurrection from the dead. He died for all the times that we failed to keep those perfect standards that are mentioned in the scriptures. He died for those so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be brought into a restorative relationship with God, the God that we divorced ourselves from. And he rose again to provide such an important word, hope. He rose again. That's one of the reasons that Jesus rose from the dead, the hope of the resurrection. He rose again to give hope, hope that as he is risen, so we will rise with him someday. He is the way, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's John 14, 6, isn't it? And as Christians, we come to the Father through him. Therefore, early Christians delighted in that title, The Way. And I quite like it as well. People stopped calling me Christian and started calling me a member of The Way. I'd be all right with that. So he wasn't anti-Bible. Paul didn't become part of The Way by diverting away from the law and the prophets. The Old Testament pointed him to Christ. He was part of The Way because of the law and prophets. He was not anti-Scripture. In fact, the Scriptures was the source of his hope in Christ. And he gets to verse 15 and we see a little bit more about this hope. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, verse 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul believed deeply, passionately, that when God raises men and women to stand before him someday, that Christ would raise him to be with him forever, not to experience the wrath of God's judgment. Paul had every assurance that that was going to be so. It was the Old Testament teaching that, that God will one day resurrect all people to stand before God that gave Paul comfort, knowing that Christ paid for sins once and for all, knowing that Christ defeated death itself, made the general, general resurrection an object of hope and not an object of fear. For he hoped in the promise that Jesus is alive, that Jesus will bring with me with him to the Father's house someday. So, um, so yeah, he, was, he was a servant moved by hope, uh, rooted in hope, you know, and he's a, he's, a, he's a servant moved by humility as well. We're going to see that in verses 17 to 26. And I know we're, we're, we're getting somewhere. I'm going to give you some, some really rich things to take with you at the end. But verse number 17 says, Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. Now these Asian Jews had apparently been following him around since his missionary journeys in Asia, waiting for the perfect opportunity to attack him. He's being a good Jew. They were being bad Jews. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Verse, verse number 19. 
They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Their absence spoke volumes about the truth of the claims against Paul. Verse 20. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Felix was aware of the conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and, and Alan dealt with that pretty well last week. But the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection, and the Sadducees pretty much rejected anything supernatural, including the resurrection. It was illegal in Judaism and Roman law to believe in the resurrection. Is that a true statement? No. It was completely, completely legal to believe in a resurrection. He'd done nothing illegal. Paul very wisely shifts the attention away from the false claims, and he highlights, highlights this uh, particular controversy. So he sidesteps it all, and I want you to see why he's doing this. He sidesteps it all to address the issues near and dear to his heart. Now, let me just say this. When you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're wanting to share the gospel with someone, one of the most difficult things to do, we do it on the streets every every week, by the way, when weather permitting. Alan and I are in Hanley on on Monday from, from 12 to 1. We're in, we're in Newcastle on Tuesday from 12 to 1. We're in Longton on Wednesday from 12 to 1. And if you ever want to pop in and, and share Christ with us, feel, feel free. But one thing that I'm finding over and over again as we're doing this is the most difficult thing is to shift the conversation back to the gospel. And Paul is trying to do that. He's trying to take the conversation and shift it to what he really wants to talk about. But, but what is near and dear to his heart? That's the question. What's near and dear to his heart? Number one, a concern for the church. Okay? Verse number 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way of Christianity, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends provide for or visit him. Now, let me, let me, let me just condense this down. Paul had the church and his brothers and sisters in mind here. Paul wasn't necessarily fighting for himself and his own freedom. He already knew he was going to Rome, and this was just another way that he would get there. He wasn't fighting for his own self and his own freedom. He was concerned for the future of the church, and he wanted to see his brothers and sisters again. And Felix granted him that privilege, actually. His brothers and sisters could come and go. So here's an important principle. I want you to hear this. Paul was not content with enduring this trial on his own. He was not content with enduring this trial on his own. He knew that he could not do it on his own. Of course, he needed the Lord and the Lord's strength, but he also needed his brothers and sisters. He needed his brothers and sisters. As Paul Tripp has rightly said, independence is a myth. You think you got this? You don't. You need the gospel today as much as you ever have. Remember that moment of, of, of conversion, right before conversion, when you realized how much you needed Jesus? The desperation and calling out to Christ for salvation. You are just as desperate today. Just as desperate for him 
today. You can do nothing on your own. Independence is a myth. Paul was not content with enduring this trial on his own. I was preparing for the sermon. I couldn't help but think of Alan. And um, he's over there dealing with what he's dealing with. Victoria's back here. And you know what I've been delighted in seeing? I've been delighted in seeing a family, family of brothers and sisters rally around my sister. I've been delighted to see it. And I know it's meant a lot to Victoria. It's been beautiful. No one was meant to endure hardships on their own. Certainly not the people of God. You know what God gave us for that? He gave us the gospel, but he gave us one another. We see in the midst of his hardship, a love for, a love and concern for the church. But also we see a concern for Felix in this as well. Look in verse number 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which is an epic name, I won't, if I have a daughter, I won't name her that, actually. But um, he came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, now Paul had an overwhelming desire to share the glorious gospel message with Felix. He wanted to share this. This was part of what God had called him to do, to be a light to the Gentiles, right? And he did share it. He was not so self-absorbed that he couldn't be concerned with the lost condition of Felix. Felix needed Jesus. Now, this is a lesson for us because life gets busy, folks. Life gets so busy. We get so busy with, with work and family and education and, and social life and just our general anxieties. And we get, so, we get so busy with things that we forget that Jesus commissioned the church to take the gospel to the world. It would be lovely if we could sit in this building and just trust that God was going to bring people into this building just like he brought the animals into the ark. And we could preach the gospel to them week in, week out in this building. But that's not happening. The world is not coming to us anymore. I'm not sure if you've noticed, we live in a post-Christian society now. The world is not coming to us. We must go to the world. Now, without going into too much detail, Felix was living with this woman, Drusilla, that he'd stolen from his brother. Plot twist, huh? He'd stolen this woman away from his brother, and he was living with her. He was a, he was a sinful man. But sinful men and women are exactly the type of people that Jesus died for. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, yet even he found forgiveness, grace, and mercy in Christ. Look at verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, notice he used what they were talking about before, about the judgment to talk about the wrath of God that's going to come upon men for sins. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And we'd already about heard about Paul's hope in Christ, hadn't he? He'd heard about Paul's hope in Christ in verse 24, but in verse 25, now he calls him to repentance. And per perhaps you're here this morning, and you're in a trembling season. It says that Felix 
was afraid. In one translation, it says he trembled. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you've heard the gospel. You know it and you tremble at the thought of the judgment of God. I invite you this morning to not go away from this place trembling like Felix. Take hold of forgiveness, mercy, and grace that Jesus is extending to you. His death for your sins is enough for even sinners like you. I would maybe paraphrase that and say, or, or correct that, especially sinners like you, especially sinners like me. It's enough. Verse 26, meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given by Paul that he might release him. He was a fox, wasn't he? Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, here's where we start to get a little bit more of an insight into Felix. Apparently, he'd bitten off more than he could chew in his conversations with Paul. He never intended for it to become something so serious. He was motivated by fear of approval, approval of the Jews and the people around him, but the love of money. He wanted some money off of Paul. Why was he coming back? He thought, I'll get some money off this guy. And while he's there, Paul corners him up and witnesses to him over and over and over again about the gospel. And now he's trembling. Verse 27. From verse 27 onwards, we see the sovereign God's hold. So God is holding this whole situation. He's holding on to Paul. We sang that song last week and I absolutely love it. He will hold me fast. God's got a hold of you. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, It is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ's hold of you. And Christ had Paul safe and secure in his hands here. Notice verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Let me just, just highlight this again. Paul didn't seek flattery because he believed God when he told him he was going to get him to Rome. He didn't seek flattery because he believed that God was in control. God was at work and Paul was trusting that. Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in you will continue to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And he believed that. He believed that God was at work in him. Not just God's purposes. God's timing. He believed that what God was doing was a good work. Now let's get to this. You and me in 2023. How does this apply to you and me? We're, 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 I mean, listen, we're 20 centuries away from what happened in Acts. So how does this apply to me stood here in the 21st century? Let me give you some things, believer, to take home with you and to encourage you and to apply to your life. Number one, don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on the unchanging God. Listen, don't focus on the circumstances because circumstances change every single day. Some people are caught in the shifting sands of life, right? Things are changing every single day. Friends you thought you could depend on, they betray you. They leave. You're alone. Whatever the case might be, things are changing every day. You may become redundant at work. Things are changing and we can't control how things change. Don't focus on that. You're going to be disappointed over and over and over again. Focus on the unchanging God. The God who was faithful when you had the job is faithful without the job. The God who was faithful when you had the friend is faithful without the friend. 
He's not changed. The world could forsake you, but God will never leave you. Number two, I want you to take this home with you. No one is an island. No one's an island. That's no way to live. God didn't make you to live that way. I'm needy. As a believer, I am needy. I can't live as an island because I can't function that way. I wasn't made to function that way. I don't have the ability or the desire to function as an island. When God saved me, God saved me not to be an island, not to be one person. God saved me to be part of a family. It's, 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 it's like a hand, right? One, one finger on its own. What, what if I get in a fight with somebody? I'm not planning it, by the way. But what if I get in a fight with someone and it's time for me to swing the first blow and I come with the finger? How's that going to go down if the full force of my swing is just with this finger? I'm going to break this finger, aren't I? That finger's not surviving that. It's weak. It's just one finger. But look, you take all the fingers together and you have a fist. Now, please do not go from this place and just start swinging your fist around at people because the pastor gave you this illustration. What I'm, what I'm trying to bring your attention is this. We're weak on our own. We are strong together. True story. One believer in Christ is an island and he's weak and he's needy. But if Christ is your provider and Christ is my provider and we're in a family of people living out the life of Christ among one another and experiencing the grace of love that God's put in our hearts together, you know what we have? We have power. We have strength. We have dependability. Because Christ is my provider. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to try to pronounce it. Shuikai Yokoi. I probably just slaughtered that. I'm glad there are no Japanese people in the congregation this morning. Shuikai Yokoi was a Japanese soldier in the war. When the war ended, he didn't believe it. He was not willing to accept that Japan had lost the war. He went to an island in Guam, and he lived for 28 years, holding out hope that the war had not ended, not believing it. When they showed up, man, he had, he had made his own clothing out of like tree bark and all kinds of stuff. He had buckled down, believing, believing the war wasn't over. That it hadn't happened. But you know what? Had he been around God's people, I mean, had he been around the, the, the community, he would have known. But just think of that one person, one person just living down, buckling down for years and years and years, holding on to the hope that what he feared was true wasn't true. But listen, I want you to flip that for a minute. I want you to take that illustration of him. and He is holding on to the hope that what he heard isn't true. But we're not holding on to that hope, are we? We're holding on to the hope of knowing that the gospel is true. We're holding on to the hope of knowing that Christ is among us, that Christ is empowering us to be in a community of people just like this, who gather around people when they're in hardships, who gather around one another when they need them, who pour life 
and love and grace and mercy and comfort and peace into one another's lives. Listen, if a man can hold on for 28 years of the hope that it wasn't true, we can buckle down as a community and we can hold on in hope that the gospel is true. That no matter what I'm going through in this moment right now, the gospel speaks into me and the gospel is still true. May God bless these thoughts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I'm just so grateful that you gave us that promise that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. You said, Lord, that we... As we go in the name of Jesus, that you would be with us always, even to the end of the age. With faith in our hearts, we believe it. Where could we flee from your presence? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nowhere. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.